Welcome to the 45th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about how to plan and set guidelines for ad hoc teams or working with existing teams. What software and processes should you use? Oh man, so I want to insert right away that when you're working with a team, whether you're forming a new team or you have an old team, you want to have some sort of social contract with each other so you have some sort of set guidelines about how the team works together. It can be a totally social contract. It can be something more formal. Um, I kind of like the middle ground of having like a wiki document of some various bullet points and guidelines that sort of define how we work as a team. These things are not just for how you work with each other as a team, but it also informs the rest of the organization how to interact with you in terms of what the, what the processes are making requests or who is leading up various parts of the team. If it's all documented correctly and in a public place, it lets other people interface with you easily and not cause more friction. And one thing that, that you want to avoid on your team or maybe your old team is multiple people doing different projects, but kind of just going in completely orthogonal directions. And if you bring on a new member of the team, uh, you have some turnover, uh, you switch responsibilities, then there's a whole lot more of stuff to figure out how those other services work, where you could all be working sort of within the same guidelines and know where to go and find stuff. For me, one of the most important parts of the, the team dynamic in technology companies like we work in is being able to have a shared vision of what kind of platforms and technologies and things you're supporting and using and developing for and developing on. Tonight, we're going to talk, or today, we're going to talk a little bit about the technology choices, about how we work. In future episodes, we will touch on how do you choose what systems to deploy or other deployment methodology. But tonight, it's going to be more. But today it's going to be mostly about the technology choices themselves. And in the beginning, that is the platform. You're in this in this sense, it is who are the members of the team? If you're developing a service for other people in terms of a tool tool setup, what are what is your target platform? Who are you trying to help? Is this developers? Is this QA analysts? Is this business intelligence folks? Is this customer support? Who are you trying to build those towards? And are you supporting developers that you know run an OSX laptop? Are you deploying for uh, Ubuntu servers for some web fancy web app? And in more and more teams these days, the answer to this question is: you're you're deploying for developers. Developers have a standard issued OS ten Apple laptop, and they have a a fairly specific set of base requirements for code and signing and other pieces, and so. Generally, we're going to be talking tonight about targeting developers working on a Mac laptop. This is—I know—this isn't always the case. There are lots of shops that do Windows and Linux and other things, but it's becoming very common that OS X is the default. And I definitely have some examples of of managing Ubuntu servers as well. But the idea being, you have probably, hopefully, a limited amount of platforms that you're that you're scoped for, and this is something to work with management to try to reduce that if that's a problem. So the next thing on my list is code repositories. Does your code all live in a monorepo? Do you have a specific place where uh, code repositories live? 
where does where do your projects that you create for infrastructure, for monitoring, for for helping move developers forward with managing their laptops, where does that exist? And it should exist in the same in the same place as everyone else's stuff. It doesn't have to be a monorepo, so to speak. But you should have a code repository where I can go if I'm joining your company and figure out all the stuff that we're that we're going to be messing with and where it all lives. Can you take a second and explain exactly what a monorepo is? Oh, monorepo. So there's there's two basic theories of code management, so to speak. There is having a repository for each individual project, so each individual project can move and interoperate sort of independently. Then there's having one repository where all of your projects live together in. The benefits being that it becomes difficult to break something if you need to upgrade a library while you're committing and building the monorepo, you can tell if any other applications in the monorepo need further attention to make sure that everything is taking that library upgrade correctly. And it sort of is intended to help you move together as a team in lockstep. Now, next, there are religious wars about monorepos and versus versus multi-repo, sure. Um, and that's another episode. Yeah, we'll probably do that relatively soon. Another interesting thing to look at when it comes to this part of it is a lot of the the fancy, a lot of the fancy hosted software distribution platforms, Bitbucket and Git, um, GitLab and GitHub and everybody else have these slick UIs for doing pull requests and other things. A lot of these allow you to have workflows built into them for approving and denying pull requests or running builds or other things beforehand, and as much as people like to live in the command line, some of these pieces really work better on the GUI and having an understanding of what you're going to enforce upon the developers and the users and how you're going to work, do that workflow is really important. Even if it's just two lines in your, in your, your statement document that say, we are going to have 100% code pass before we'll ever merge anything or whatever it is, just to make sure that everybody's on the same page about it is important. All code changes have to go through a, a pull request or peer review process simple enough. And yeah, the the UI on GitHub to do pull requests is really amazing. Uh, Atlassian's Bitbucket is not far behind. So once you've established your platform and repository issues, the next big thing to look at is what languages are in scope for your, your team. The, the idea is to set some guidelines over what languages you use to in operations, in infrastructure, to basically guard against multiple languages being introduced and much more cognitive burden if you end up having to to deal with other projects inside the the inside your company um i've definitely been in situations where everybody uses basically every language and those get complex and fun pretty quickly there's some Lua, but, and there's yeah. some Ruby, and there's some Python, and there's some Shell, and there's it's all mixed together. And you got the old Perl guy in the back, and <laughs> um, but yeah, Python has definitely become sort of a go-to language for operations and infrastructure kind of work. Um, and I too have a 15 years or so of experience uh, playing around with Python and using it to solve real-world problems. Um. Folks like the uh, PEX packaging standard 
to distribute Python stuff as well and keep it contained. What Another- you want to think through when you're uh, deciding what language you should use is probably also, if you want to use Python, what testing harness framework do you want to use? Uh, what st- uh, code style guides do you want to follow with Python? One of the common ones for Python is PEP8, and style guides should be considered for all things you're doing in terms of code. If everybody is using a similar flow and format and indentation style, it makes all the code easier to read when you're switching between different authors of different things. So a lot of a lot of junior folks think, oh, it's not, it's not that important. As long as I'm doing it the way that I like it. But it's really critical to follow a, a set guideline. And thankfully, Python has the PEP8 stuff, which allows you to just run a linter against your code and it tells you where you're out of spec. And it's very, very quick to point out all of the idiosyncrasies and make everybody follow the same general paths. I'm also a big fan of Go, which is definitely a newer language, but it comes with tools like uh, GoFMT, which is a more or less universally agreed upon style guide for Go. And you run the Go format on your code and it just fixes your code for you. Not everybody agrees with with its chosen format, um, especially tabs. I've never been a big fan of tabs and Go format uses tabs instead of spaces. But the fact that most Go code throughout the Go community is uniformly formatted and using the same style is an amazingly powerful feature. Go also has pretty well built-in test harnesses as well. So in this case, I would definitely suggest if you want to include Go in your toolkit, uh, go ahead and standard on sort of the built-in test framework. Thankfully, Go deployment is not usually a large collection of crap. It's usually a, a single binary that gets dis- is built by the mechanism, which includes all the pieces you need. So distribution of Go applications is usually much more straightforward than trying to package up either a Python or God help you Perl application. But yeah, go ahead and choose more than one language as sort of a pool of accepted languages. Two or three, I think, is is a pretty good set. More than that, starts bringing in added complexity fewer than that and people get unhappy i think another thing to consider especially when using something like either go or python or java for a lot of things are now in java is if you're looking at including a framework or a large set of other code that should be vetted before people start building off of it so you're not trying to then interoperate between large chunks of different tool chains so in the in the Java world, especially, there's lots of different overarching frameworks you can you can kind of dig into. So before bringing in a new project, discuss and try to understand why you're bringing in that that chunk of code. And hopefully, the developer into the house has a pretty good handle on the libraries and frameworks uh, that they use in their applications as well. Not always the case, but these kind of overlap in a way. So this brings us to distribution. Um, in the sense of how we get the built objects out from the tool chain and either onto other developers' laptops or into production or into Jenkins or however else you're distributing and building things. And there's all kinds of holy wars about how you should properly package and distribute files. There's every We're not gonna solve packaging on this episode. We're not gonna solve packaging ever. It's <laughs> ever. It's honestly just a mess. Um 
if you're if you're running a Debian servers, you should always build Debs for stuff as well as everything else you're doing. If you're running Red Hat, you build RPMs. God help you if you're running Node or other things, and you're not, start, you're not starting to build NPM packages or everything. There are plenty of different ways to package things, and the point is choose a handful, choose two or three. Um, for example, agree to package everything in Debian's if you're managing the Ubuntu stuff. There's other ways to do it. That's just one example. If you're managing uh, developer OSX laptops, use Brew to distribute binaries or other source code, um, as an example. But have everyone on your team follow sort of that same mantra of everybody produces Debian packages for servers and Brew casks for, for OSX laptops. And by allowing yourself to assume that everybody has Brew on their laptop installed correctly and figure, configured correctly, it means that you can simplify a lot of the, oh, here, try the newest version of the thing that I'm working on, instead of saying, oh, do you have the right thing? Let me get you the build for the... No, just assume, build a baseline of assumption that you can say, I know everybody has a functional Vagrant environment or Brew environment or whatever it is, so you can then easily test and iterate. Totally. So next on the list is documentation. You should have one place for your documentation. Uh, it should be in an agreed-upon format. Um, for example, you might write your documentation in Markdown. You might store it in a specific uh, Git repository or the mythical monorepo. You might have uh, a synchronization tool that will process the Markdown documentation, do any linting checks, and publish a web page or a wiki uh, page so you can easily get to it over the web as well. But there needs to be a single source of truth for where your documentation lives and when it gets edited, where those edits land. What we what you want to avoid is, well, we have a wiki where some of the documentation is. Then we bought Google Apps domain and some of our documentation is in, in Google Docs. And some of the developers just document, you know, right beside their code. And then other people use Markdown over there. And yeah, you'll you'll never find what you're looking for, or when you do, it'll be out of date. I have worked in environments where, not kidding, there were three different wikis plus documentation that lived alongside the code, and you could never find the right version of anything ever. So having having some standard processes with where documentation lives, what format it's written in, a style guide, so to speak, is is really imperative to keeping the team working together. The next large topic of this is your testing harness and your testing process. You need to have all of your code that gets deployed be testable by any member of the team, and they need to be able to understand and reliably reproduce the same errors and bugs that everybody else is getting so people can collabor collaboratively work to fix things, especially when you're not on different coasts or different time zones or, or however that is. So having a monorepo really helps with this because everybody's looking at the same checkout of the same code. It's There's, there's none of this one repo's in one state, but you're in a different branch of a different repo. Every, no, you're in the monorepo, you're in a specific checkout for everything. So that is kind of helpful. And I strongly recommend using something like either a Docker build pipeline or a Vagrant on your laptop as the blessed testing harness. And pick one. Just say, this is what we're going to test with. This is how we're going to build our Vagrant box files or our Docker images. And this is how we're going to test things so we all can make sure that when we want to test something, it's all coherent across developers. One of the things I like a lot about 
uh, my current situation is that we've sort of standardized on using Vagrant to test uh, Puppet changes. So it becomes, on one side, really easy to spin up a Vagrant image, make sure your Puppet classes apply cleanly and services run forward and daemons act as expected uh, before you uh, attempt to toss that on a a piece of hardware somewhere. And also it's perfectly reasonable to use EC2 for this uh, or any cloud provider as well. It's easy at this point to spin up some sort of virtual image to uh, be able to test uh, your puppet changes or or anything else before you roll roll things out into production. And especially with Puppet, I've found, because Puppet, you're, you're often making changes against production. And some of the Puppet syntax is not obvious, or you, you forget how the hierarchical data loading in Hyra is actually set up in this particular iteration. So it allows you to make a commit to the Puppet repo, or the, the Puppet branch of the repo, without making 15 commits. You can go test and test and iterate and test in Vagrant, and once you get it where you want it to be, you make a single commit to the repository. And it, it makes everything yeah, clear. Part of and this nicer. that's really important for iteration is being able to put code in your test harness without having to commit it. Otherwise, it gets really painful really quickly. And the number of environments so, that I've seen that require committing changes to get things visible in your Puppet development environments is almost your all test of environment, them, period. And it's awful. So, oh, you made a typo. Okay, fix that. Recommit. Wait till things sync. Okay, test again. Wait a minute, there was another typo. And suddenly you've lost the entire day chasing down typos when you could have done this in 30 to 45 minutes on your laptop and then moved on to other work. But yeah, being able to directly change the file system code, test, change file system code, test, be satisfied, then commit, then have a PR review is is where you want to be. Next, I think we have uh, communication and authentication, which is more or less sort of housekeeping for your team. Depending on how startup-y or enterprise-y your shop may be, uh, you probably have a bunch of varying uh, requirements and other possibilities here. But how do you auth to production or auth to your your workstation environment? Do you use SSH keys? Do you use Kerberos? Are there passwords still in use for the root account? Are there hardware security tokens? Choose a... a, a practice that meets your security uh, recommendations for whatever those may be and stick with it and make sure that everyone in the company can use the same uh, process for uh, authentication. So in past life, I became the keeper of the passwords and we had a, a horrible system that I'm afraid to admit, but uh, once a month, we rolled passwords, and we had business card wallet-sized um, printouts that would be distributed to folks for new passwords. Today, uh, I would definitely choose a different way to try to distribute uh, secrets among my team, especially since I mostly work with a lot of folks remotely. Secret distribution uh, becomes becomes challenging, 
Almost and, every tool I've ever seen for secret distribution is, to put it frankly, awful. Do you know of a good one? <laughs> GPG is frankly aw- awful, but it's it's my old uh, standby that I keep coming back to. I uh, will put in the show notes, there is a uh, company called Keybase.io, which is a really unique and slick user interface around building an identity and being able to have uh, private encrypted communications with other people on your team or other people throughout the internet. It's all wrapped around uh, PGP, and it's actually really slick. So I've definitely seen people use uh, Keybase as a, a method of secure communication. I knew about Keybase a year or two ago. I, I got hooked up to it for the identity stuff, but I'd never thought of it as a key distribution mechanism. That could be very interesting. They've also recently, like everybody else on the planet, um, started a Slack-alike, a HipChat-alike, a IRC-alike, um, with the backend being completely PGP encrypted. Um, mm. Honestly, in that direction, I'm a lot more uh, familiar with with the thing I can't remember. Uh, with Signal, there we go. Um, but it's in that same that same space. I think they're trying to figure out exactly who they are as a company, but they've been around for a couple of years. So then the final topic in our list kind of t- tails into this last one very nicely, which is meetings and meeting agendas. There is a need for teams to have meetings from time to time. And all there is a need for teams to have regular meetings. All meetings should have a an agenda published before the meeting starts and not two minutes before it starts, but an hour or two at the absolute shortest window. And all of these, these, these agendas should be agreed upon and then they present during the meeting and after the meeting is over, they should be archived into the wiki or made available so people, other people can read them and understand what the group was talking about, what the team was talking about, what the team was doing. One of the things that I find really helps is having blessed channels for communication so you have the meeting and you have the wiki for the meeting notes and you have a mailing list or a hip chat room or a whatever so people know that if this team is talking about their their area of expertise they know where to go to find it it's not scattered across 15 different mailing lists or different private chats or whatever it's it's in centralized places that people know to go look completely and it's totally okay to do a stand-up style meeting where everyone knows in advance and it's already agreed upon the fact that we're going to talk about stuff we did yesterday, stuff we're going to do today, and our blockers. If everyone implicitly knows what the the agenda for the meeting is ahead of time, that's totally cool. For other meetings, if we're going to discuss um, a a design document for rolling forward a specific piece of technology. There should be an agenda that comes out with that meeting that says what exactly we're going to discuss, where the design document is, uh, what, how we're going to to vet that. Better people than I. If you can't I, have an agenda, you really can't have an effective meeting. Better people than I have that I've, I've worked with have refused to go to meetings that don't have agendas beforehand, and they just say, "Okay, well, you, you've invited me to a meeting." But I never got the notes, so I didn't go to the meeting because I figured you weren't ready for the meeting. And it's yep. kind and of br- seen that. it's kind of brutal, but it's also a very effective way of saying we're not going to spend the first 
25 minutes of the 30 minute call talking about why we're having the call. Let's, let's start the call and get to work because all of us have other things to be doing. None of us want to be sitting at meetings, meetings all day are long. really one of the most expensive ways you as a startup or an enterprise can spend your capital. Um, you might say the, the employee time is a, a sunk cost, but really you've gotten everyone in your team together in a room for, or say an hour or on a call for an hour. Um, start multiplying people's hourly rates. Uh, that racks up real quick. So being able to use that time efficiently and respect uh, folks that want to get stuff done is is really important for a good meeting and a good work environment. There's also a fairly heavy cost and context switching between whatever you were working on, stopping what you're doing, going to the meeting, and then switching back and the, me- the meeting is finished. So keep all that in mind. Yeah. I think in our next episode, we can talk a little bit more about choosing services to deploy, choosing technologies and how to deploy them. But I think we've pretty much covered everything about how to organize a team around a technology. Or yeah, this is sort of te- your social contract of how you work together as a team. It's also a technological contract of you need to be agreeing on both the social norms of how you communicate and the technical choices of what tools you're going to use together to communicate. Please take the time to rate the show on iTunes. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 45th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We have been Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks.